0: This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: Donald Trump is casting his wishes for Wisconsin's 2022 gubernatorial election. Over the weekend, the former president called on former Republican Congressman Sean Duffy to run for Wisconsin governor. Duffy represented Wisconsin's 7th district for about eight years in the House of Representatives. In 2019, he resigned, citing a heart condition with his and his wife's ninth child. Duffy has not indicated whether he plans to run. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Duffy sold his Wausau home in September and listed his residence in New Jersey. Should he run, Duffy would face former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clefish and at least five other Republican contenders for the GOP nomination next August. Current Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, announced his re-election campaign in June.
0: Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes is leading the pack in fundraising in a crowded Democratic primary for U.S. Senate. According to the Associated Press, Barnes brought in $1.1 million from July through September. Two of Barnes' competitors, Milwaukee Bucks executive Alex Lasry and state treasurer Sarah Galuski, each brought in more than a million dollars, but a bulk of their funding comes from large contributions those two candidates made to their own campaigns. Barnes, Galuski, Lasry, and nine other Democrats are all squaring off for the right to challenge Republican Senator Ron Johnson next year, that is, if he decides to run. Johnson has repeatedly dodged questions on whether or not he'll seek re-election.
1: In an incident on State Street one week ago Sunday, a Madison police officer was shot, the first time an MPD officer was shot in about two decades. The incident was not fatal, and the officer has since been released from the hospital. Today, the State Department of Justice, which is investigating the incident, announced that the shooting was the result of another Madison police officer and was not the result of another individual the police were attempting to detain.
0: A man who was shot last August by Kyle Rittenhouse during protest against police violence is filing a federal lawsuit alleging that Kenosha police mishandled the demonstrations. Rittenhouse is currently facing a litany of charges for killing two and injuring a third during protests last summer. According to the Associated Press, Gage Grouskreutz, the one who survived an encounter with Rittenhouse, has filed a lawsuit alleging that police allowed an armed right-wing militia to freely roam Kenosha's streets during the protest.
1: Hundreds of students at Madison East High School walked out of school again last Friday, protesting the school district's policies for handling sexual misconduct. Students in the city's three other public high schools also walked out in support. And they came with demands, including better clarity on how to report sexual assault or harassment and what happens after a report is made. It was the second walkout at East High School last week. Earlier in the week, on Wednesday, students walked out in support of a victim of an alleged assault that happened in a private residence following the school's homecoming dance. WORT is following up on the story.
0: The Madison Metropolitan School District saw a 442 student enrollment drop this year. The Capital Times reports that the drop follows a steady trend of declining enrollment that's been ongoing since at least 2017. All told, MMSD has lost more than 1,600 students since 2017.
1: And now here's your COVID 19 numbers, courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases currently stands at 2,158 new cases. Nearly 55% of the state's population, that's some 3.2 million people, have completed their vaccination series.
0: And now, on to today's top stories.
1: At its meeting on Thursday, Dane County's Board of Supervisors adopted tentative new district lines for county board seats. Compared to the legislature's legal slugfest, This process was straightforward and nonpartisan, and county leaders say their methods should serve as a model for lawmakers at the state capitol. Our producer, Jonah Chester, has the details.
2: Dane County's new supervisory map is the result of months of work by a nonpartisan redistricting commission. Earlier this month, that group put forward three map proposals to county leaders, and last night supervisors voted 32 to 2 to adopt one of those maps. While several supervisors disagreed with the finer details of the map, many praised the process as an improvement over the county's past redistricting efforts. Supervisor Tim Kiefer said the county's process should serve as a blueprint for state lawmakers who are already duking out their redistricting battle in court.
3: We are really an example to the state legislature where they have lawsuits and it's going to be a a big fight and frankly a big mess. And if they had adopted the system we had adopted,
2: this all would have been avoided. Governor Tony Evers established a nonpartisan people's maps commission last year, but that group can only recommend maps. The Republican-held legislature is under no obligation to consider those maps. Under Dane County's model, the redistricting commission, on which no county supervisor serves, puts forward maps that supervisors can vote up or down. County supervisors are essentially removed from the drafting process. It's the first time the county has used such a method for its decennial redistricting process. And Supervisor Anne DeGarmo pointed out that it was one heck of an inaugural year for the redistricting commission.
1: It was going to be an adventure no matter what, because this is the first time that we've gone through this process. But to do it in the midst of a pandemic, all virtual, which I'm certain that nobody at the time of creation of this ordinance envisioned was going to happen, and also with a delayed census... I have an immense appreciation for the work that you have all done in this process.
2: Supervisor Yogesh Chavla also praised the commission's efforts to adequately represent Dane County's minority communities. These maps were were made in such a way to maximize uh, minority representation. And when we look across the country and we look at what typically happens, maps are made to dilute minority power and
4: to maintain the status quo.
2: But a few county supervisors raised concerns about the final map. Supervisor Jeremy Levin criticized the public input process, arguing that the commission didn't allow enough time for input and that the group didn't adequately address concerns that the map fractured certain communities, like Madison's Regent neighborhood. Levin was one of two no-votes opposing the map alongside Supervisor Jeff Weigand.
5: Definitely
6: shame that we're sort of stuck in the position we are because it is the next 10 years.
2: As exact results from the U.S. Census came late this year, the county was on a compressed timeline for redistricting. According to Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald, the board had to adopt a tentative map by Friday to stay on track for final adoption next month, which meant no time to send the map back to the commission for further revisions. Supervisor Rochelle André, who voted in favor of the proposed map, said that next time around, supervisors should include time to pass the map back to the commission. Because I
7: think that we can't expect members of the public, clerks, to weigh in on 50 different maps that are coming up. You know, people start paying attention at the end of this process.
2: McDonald says that the map's lines may be nudged slightly in the coming weeks as the county reconciles it with aldermanic and ward districts in local towns and cities. Generally, these are very small a few blocks, a a few dozen people, maybe 100 people. After those final adjustments are made, supervisors will adopt a final map next month. Three supervisors, Sheila Stubbs, Tim Rockwell, and Stephen Peters, were excused from Thursday's vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. The push for climate change is as important now as ever before. That was the
0: theme of a multi-faith rally calling for accelerated action on climate change earlier today. WORT reporter Ben Kern tells us more.
5: Dozens gathered around the Wisconsin Capitol building today for one mission, improving global climate health. The event called Prayers for the Planet was coordinated through GreenFaith, a worldwide multi-faith coalition that seeks a better future for the health of our planet. Today's rally featured eight speakers, with some demonstrators even bringing instruments, like the kosher shofar horn in the introduction. Fight, and
2: night. Don't water
5: the Togetherness was the main message for demonstrators, as representatives from Christian and Muslim organizations, Native American tribal leaders, followers of paganism, and Unitarian Universalists all gathered together to spread awareness of their environmental objective. Kelly Aspreth Jackson is a senior director at the First Unitarian Society in Madison. He urged the need for collective action in solving climate change.
3: Justice work around climate and the well-being of the earth and the people who live on it, uh, it's just an obvious place for interreligious um, dialogue because all of us are bound up in this, all of us are connected by this issue, none of us can escape it, uh, and so we need to be a source of strength and support and solace for each other."
5: Janice knapp Cordes helped organize today's rally. She says making a lasting impact for future generations keeps her drive for this issue alive.
0: Well, I have been concerned about climate action for over 20 years. Uh, for my children in the beginning but now for my grandchildren this is an area that is the most important to me
5: Nap Cortez says there might not be much more time for action she cites a recent report from the international panel on climate change or IPCC a coalition of hundreds of climate scientists from around the world. The report is thousands of pages long, but in short, it finds that climate change is here and is unequivocally caused by human action.
0: The IPCC has declared code red. We have 10 years to reverse the amount of carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere. Otherwise, we are going to bake in some irreversible changes. So the message is, act now.
5: But that IPCC report also finds that some of the worst impacts of climate change can be avoided if systemic action is taken quickly. Bruce Beck is a member of the Citizens' Climate Lobby, a Madison environmental organization.
4: Well, our group
0: thinks that we need to set a price on carbon emissions. We should agree that carbon emissions are unacceptable as we go into the future. We need to phase them out and that that's essential to protect the Earth's climate.
5: Today's rally comes before an international conference on climate change. Called COP26, the 13-day UN Climate Summit is slated to start at the end of this month. And it could be an opportunity to accelerate environmental agreements to combat climate change. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern.
1: It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Hunter Nation. The Kansas based lobbying group was behind this past winter's wolf hunt, which saw hunters blow past the state imposed quota, and they're fighting in court to keep next month's wolf hunt on track. Last week, they brought 1970s rocker Ted Nugent to the state capitol to advocate for a new package of Republican-authored hunting legislation. And according to records obtained by the Wisconsin Examiner, the group has also consulted with Frederick Prain, the embattled chair of the state's Natural Resource Board, to help him retain his seat even after his term has expired. In a few short years, Hunter Nation has interwoven itself into environmental policy here in Wisconsin. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Henry Redman, a reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner. All
2: right, so just starting out here, let's start with a basic question, but one that we're going to take the next few minutes to sort of dive deeper into. Who is Hunter Nation? Can you give me the history of this organization? Yeah,
8: I mean, Hunter Nation is this nonprofit started in Kansas a few years ago that sort of aims to push for what they say are the interests of hunters across the country. Um, They've been especially active in Wisconsin, though. Um, Their president and CEO is from here, and they have sort of really inserted themselves into politically pushing The state's conservation policies in the direction they want through how many animals are being hunted, what sorts of animals are being hunted, and it's really ramped up over the last year and a half.
2: Yeah, so let's let's rattle off some of their uh, greatest hits, if you will. They were the organization that sued and kicked off this uh, past February's wolf hunt. They're entering a legal battle in court to preserve. The upcoming hunt next month, they were behind what was, frankly, a pretty surreal press conference with Ted Nugent last week where he backed a package of Republican-authored hunting bills. And according to your reporting and documents the Wisconsin Examiner has obtained, they're even consulting with Frederick Prain, who's the sort of embattled chair of the state's Natural Resources Board to advise him on how he can keep that position, even though his tenure technically expired earlier this spring. Now, you mentioned there that they're heavily involved in Wisconsin, but can you outline sort of their reach for me? Are there other states they're this active in, or is it do they have their eyes pretty much set on Wisconsin solely for the time being?
8: I mean, they're active in other states, but they are not this active in other states. You know, from lawsuits pushing to get the lawsuits, you mentioned Fred Prane. So they're really trying to take control of the Natural Resources Board. And with that Ted Nugent press conference last week, they were involved in this big package of bills introduced by Republicans in the legislature. And it appears like this is the first legislative package they've had a hand in pushing for in a state. But in that press conference, they said that they're trying to do similar things in other states. So it seems like... Wisconsin is really their practice ground for a lot of this.
2: And towards the tail end of September, you published a a really interesting breakdown of their structure in the briefest possible terms, because you dedicate north of, I think, like a thousand words to breaking this down. But in the briefest possible terms, can you explain how this organization is sort of structured?
8: Yeah, it's sort of multiple branches with different nonprofit statuses, the main organization. Hunter Nation, Inc., that is most involved in Wisconsin, is the 501C4, which means that they're allowed to push for political causes. And that's the the oldest branch of the organization. But they also have a foundation and another nonprofit that sort of raises money for similar but not quite as political hunting-related causes.
2: And I'd actually like to circle back around to a topic we just touched on there a minute ago, and that is Hunter Nation's involvement with Frederick Pray. Now, according to documents obtained by the examiner, they consulted with him when he was looking for essentially a, a route to keep his seat on the Natural Resources Board. Tell me more about what your records request uncovered about that relationship.
8: Yeah. Um, Fred Prey, from when he was, from before his term expired through the summer as he was getting more and more pressure from conservation groups and Democrats and the Department of Justice. Uh, Hunter Nation's lobbyist was one of the people he was most in contact with. The lobbyist was pushing Crane to you know stay strong. He was pushing him not to give in to all the pressure. And the emails I got also showed that even though Prane was insisting that his decision to stay on the board was For not political reasons, it was explicitly to influence the wolf hunt scheduled for this November and how many wolves were going to be killed in that hunt.
2: And that transitions us pretty nicely. Talk to me about how Hunter Nation, obviously they were the they were the main plaintiff in the case where that lawsuit tripped off this past February's wolf hunt. But talk to me about how they're involved in next month's upcoming wolf hunt.
8: Well, they're involved in making sure Fred Prain is on the Natural Resources Board to set the quota at what Hunter Nation wants. They're also very vocal about their desire to have the quota be as high as possible. And they also are involved in a number of the legal challenges from all sorts of sides fighting over what exactly the quota should be in November.
2: Talk to me about the group's CEO, Luke Hilgeman. You mentioned that he lives in Wisconsin, which may be part of the reason why they have such a focus on Wisconsin as opposed to other states.
8: Hilgeman has been sort of involved in sort of conservative Wisconsin politics for quite a while. Obviously, now he works with Hunter Nation, but he's worked with Americans for Prosperity and the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, which sort of brings cookie cutter legislation to state legislatures across the country, including often in Wisconsin. And often those bills are sort of the ones that get the most vocal opposition and sometimes really strike at the culture war topics that have been really at the forefront over the last couple of years.
2: Henry, thanks so much for for joining me today. That's all I had for you. But before I let you go, is there anything else you want to toss on the record that your reporting has revealed? I know you've been following the the DNR, the Fight Over Frederick Brain and Hunter Nation by extension for the past several months. Is there anything we haven't touched on here today that you want to toss on the record that you think folks need to be aware of, looking at the broader picture here, that we haven't had a chance to raise?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Wisconsin hunting culture has been around for a very long time, and it's sort of got very specific values and traditions. And it's interesting to see how this out-of-state group involving itself in state conservation policies has sort of made it so much more political than it's ever been in years past.
2: Henry, thanks so much, as always, for, for coming on the show. I appreciate your time.
8: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Henry Redmond is a reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner, and you can find his work on the Examiner's website. That's just wisconsinexaminer.com
1: you're listening to handcrafted local news here on wort stay with us we've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show we look back on 20 years of madison's social justice center the past isn't past celebrates person's day and we speak with the winners of this year's forward art prize
0: but now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines back in a flash time is now six thirty three, and you're listening to the local news on wort i'm your host nick dodge here with my co-host rachel fields thanks for joining us
1: this coming saturday madison's social justice center is celebrating its 20th anniversary since its founding in the early 2000s the organization has housed over 50 organizations at its location on willie street for a look back on the program's origins, Monday 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Annie Kraus, the Center's Director of Operations and Development.
3: So what was going on back in 2001 that sparked the creation of the SJC?
1: Well,
9: I've been spending the past couple months talking with folks who are involved in the campaign and in the formulation of the ideas, so I feel like it wasn't there, I can... Speak about it, and basically, it turns out it, it had started a lot earlier than in two thousand in the nineties. Lots of groups that were housed in in different locations throughout Madison had been talking about this, and they it kept coming back to the idea. Um, but the conditions weren't right. They didn't have a building. They didn't have funding. They weren't organized, and so it was really just an idea. Um, but basically, you know these various groups and community organizers all shared the same thinking that organizations spend so much or can spend so much of their time and resources on the operations and admin and so-called overhead costs that if organizations could work together and, and share resources and share the work on that end, that you know, less of their time and money could go towards rent or utilities or, you know, basically funds that benefit a for-profit landlord, and they could work together to spend more of their energy on their missions. And so the stars aligned, and people worked really hard to make it happen. They were able to, buy the former location of the Lily Street Co-op, and four organizations, the Tenor Resource Center, Wisconsin Citizen Action, Wisconsin Community Fund, and Madison Community Cooperatives were the first four partner organizations that created the Social Justice Center, the organization, and bought the building, um, and the rest is history, I guess.
3: <laughs> and, and did that model work? I mean, that idea of sort of, sharing or creating an umbrella organization that would take care of all that sort of infrastructure need did did that work the way people intended it to?
9: I think it did Um, I mean and we're still here so it definitely worked to some degree but I think the original vision is still definitely alive and well it's a lot of today and back then it's been a lot of surprise challenges I think people didn't expect or at least just didn't know what they were in for um running uh, a building and a cooperative shared governance organization on top of running your own organization is it's just a lot um the building itself running basically doing property management and um facilities maintenance and all that sort of stuff is not necessarily the same skill set as someone who advocates for environmental policy change or housing cooperatives. So that, I think there was a big learning curve in the way that the sort of shared commons maintenance, how that works on top of running, you know, an office and an incubator for small nonprofits. And so that's always taken everyone by surprise the amount of costs and sort of forward planning that social justice groups aren't always in the best position to think about. You know, they're always one thing to the next, advocating being involved in making change and, you know, flying by the seat of their pants sometimes. But when you also have to pivot and think about, oh, how are we going to replace the air conditioner and that sort of thing, I'm sure that's something I've heard over and over that that was always, A big challenge but by you know working together and and sort of divvying up the various responsibilities um, that's how you know they they managed to make it work and today it's we're still here like I said that I I mean I think that's evidence enough that the model works but I think it's also you know supportive of a fact that this is a, a worthwhile model to pursue that we've had dozens of incubator organizations be able to benefit from very low rent and amenities like printer internet um, and networking let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, the
3: the idea of this nonprofit incubator, you've had, you said, dozens, you know, over 50 or so um, nonprofits that have been in the building, Uh, many of whom uh, started there, have grown up, gone on, you know, left the nest, uh, so to speak, and gone off to uh, bigger and better things. Um, What are some of those organizations and what are they doing now?
9: Well, there are many organizations, some of them are still in the building that, Um, you know, didn't even want to leave, but they have grown. Like Wisconsin Books to Prisoners and LGBT Books to Prisoners, they're still there um, after many years. Progressive Dane has been in the incubator for years and years, um, and they have everything they need from an office space and a meeting space. One of our more recent additions to the incubator Madison Worker Cooperatives, as well as two of their member cooperatives, Interpreters Cooperative Madison and Common Good Bookkeeping, they've now moved up and become a partner organization in one of the first floor locations. So some organizations have grown, fled the nest, but stayed in the nest.
3: Madison Social Justice Center Director of Operations and Development, Annie Krause. The live stream 20th birthday celebration begins Saturday, October 23rd at 5 o'clock p.m. You can catch it on Facebook. Annie, thanks so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz.
9: Thanks,
0: Brian. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson teaches us about Persons Day, which marks a 1929 decision by Canadian courts that extended electoral rights to some women.
8: Joe Chavez, who fought in their own time, for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line, for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long.
4: Today, October 18th, is Persons Day in Canada. The day commemorates the rights of white women to sit in the Senate of Canada in 1929. It is rightly celebrated as a day that greatly expanded some women's rights to hold office and be recognized as persons under the law, but women of color were not included. Racial exclusion against Chinese and Indo-Canadians were lifted in 1947, Japanese-Canadians in 1948. The last Canadians to be given the right to vote were its first peoples. The right to vote was extended unconditionally to First Nations people in 1960 for federal elections. Their provincial suffrage was only recognized a decade later, notably in Alberta in 1967 and Quebec in 1969. This month also marks National Day of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and LGBTQ plus people on October 4th. But October 18th was an important step forward. The day commemorates the Persons case that was decided in favor of white women by the Privy Council of Great Britain, then the highest court of Canada, still formerly a British colony. The women who pushed this case to victory, the famous five, were shocked by the unfavorable ruling of the Canadian Supreme Court, but persisted. In 1927, the women launched the legal challenge Emily Murphy, Nellie McClung, Louise McKinney, Irene Parleby, and Henrietta Muir Edwards were journalists, politicians, reformers, and activists from Alberta who asked the Supreme Court to answer the following question. Does the word persons in the British North America Act, BNA Act of 1867, then the Supreme Law of Canada, include women? The Supreme Court decided no. The shocked women promptly appealed to the Privy Council and received a favorable ruling. On October 18, 1929, Lord Chancellor of Great Britain, Lord Sankey, announced the decision. The exclusion of women from all public offices is a relic of days more barbarous than ours, and to those who would ask why the word persons should not include females, the obvious answer is why should it not. Women in Canada had always struggled for their rights, but the efforts to vote advanced starting in 1900s in the West as social change accelerated with a shift from rural to urban living. There seemed to be an increase in alcohol abuse and prostitution. Some women used these issues to form the Women's Temperance Union. They worked to make what they saw as needed changes, like prohibition and laws to protect women and children. In 1916, Alberta passed legislation granting women the right to vote. The Famous Five represented powerful movements for change. They had all been activists since the 1880s. The group first convened in Alberta in August of 1927 after 10 years of debate around the issue. Emily Murphy, the first woman judge of the British Empire, was appointed a magistrate of the Edmonton, Alberta Juvenile Court in 1916 and later a magistrate for the newly created Women's Court. She called the others together at her home to bring the case to the Supreme Court. Louise McKinney became one of the first two women elected to the legislature in the British Empire. She won a seat to the Alberta legislature in 1917. She ran as a member of the Reform-Minded Nonpartisan League. She pushed for more effective prohibition laws and aid to people with disabilities. Her major project was to improve legal status of widows and divorced women. She was a founder of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU, in Alberta and the West. She served as the group's VP for more than 22 years. Irene Parlby was another early legislature. She became the second woman to win an Alberta cabinet post. She served for eight years while the United Farmers were in power. She helped pass 18 laws that helped women and children. Henrietta Muir Edwards helped found and lead the National Council of Women of Canada for 35 years. She was also a leader of the Red Cross. Nellie McClung held many jobs, which included teacher, author, public speaker, temperance activist, and politician. She was the only woman representative at the League of Nations, truly an amazing group of women. And that is our story for today. For The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: It's now 6.45 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: The inaugural edition of our new Features series, Artful Encounters, feature contributor Gabrielle Javier Cerulli speaks with the two winners of the $10,000 Forward Art Prize. They share what the award means to them and how they plan to use it to further their creative endeavors.
10: So, and now we would like to uh,
7: bring up our two award winners, Alice Triori and Yanhee Chiang. The Women Artist Forward Fund awards the Forward Art Prize, which is an annual unrestricted award of $10,000 each for two women visual artists living in Dane County, Wisconsin. I was able to catch up with the two winners about what winning this large award means to them and their future work. First, we start with Yanni Cheng, a textile artist and more.
10: I'm a visual artist and... Um, my medium depends on which topic I would like to say. It's more like a medium comes to me instead of I dig up the medium.
7: What, what mediums have you worked in though?
10: I started as a fashion designer a long time ago. So fiber or textile was always my medium, but maybe from my childhood also um, I draw a lot. So drawing and painting is always kind of my go to medium always and i also learned a lot of computer graphics so wow.
7: um, winning this award what does that mean
10: to you it means many different things to me but most of all i think it's more like confirmation or recognition of uh, that i'm doing something worthy mm. yeah especially mm. The pandemic. Um, I had a few show, a few exhibitions in town, at the city hall, and city hall was shut down. <laughs> oh. and no one could see my work. And I just had a big uh, opening at the Piny Library with my um, textile work, and then right before the grand opening, it was shut down. Mm-hmm. So no one could see it for a year, probably. Two all Mm -hmm. dusting out right now so as an artist who always wanted to tell my story through medium and communicate with people I kind of had had kind of existential crisis
7: Mm
10: -hmm. (laughs) of the weekend and wondering what am I doing here Mm -hmm. am I doing something worthy or is it good enough you know Mm -hmm. as an artist any kind of artist always we show something and then we always get evaluated and judged getting this award gave me a lot of encouragement Mm. kind of telling me that you are doing something good you are doing doing it right just keep going kind of giving me a lot of freedom that I would pursue something in the future not just limited what I used to do right
7: Right. do you have any plans right now for
10: yeah, actually, I we always know, have course, too many ideas. <laughs> I need to trim it out. Yeah, pruning fine. is the thing I always have to try to do. <laughs> but yeah, but more recently I began to a little bit more interest in 3D graphics, okay. especially like uh, if if possible, I would like to try VR, virtual reality. Oh. But if not, at least the video work with uh, some kind of in the world (laughs) okay yeah so i probably would pursue that direction with this money maybe buying high power computer and buying some programs that i would like to explore um, more possibilities and reach out more people in the world
7: very cool and um if people want to see your work now where can they find you online
10: yeah the Best place is my website because you can see a larger image um, right. in there. And, but I also have some Instagram.
7: Okay. What is your website and what is your Instagram?
10: Yeah, my website is my name, So it's like Y-E-O-N-H-E-E-C-H-E-O-N-G. And Instagram is just also my name. If you type my name, you will be able okay. to see my, yeah.
7: Well, great. Well, thank you so much, um, and good luck with your artwork moving forward.
10: Thank you. I'm really happy. <laughs> Next up
7: is watercolors, Alice Triori. All right, Alice. So tell us what winning this award means to you. ha huh,
6: so winning this award has it, it's been a huge indicator that my, my work is, is worthy of sharing. It has been validation of my work. I think that drawing, painting, and so forth has been something that I have done for myself. And I think this recognition is the, the perfect blending of just the amount of I have something to say, and other people will want to hear what I have to say. And also not getting too caught up in validation, you know? So I will go back and do do the art that I want to and not the art that I think will get praise and recognition. So yeah, I I really appreciate the fact that this was a Mm women-focused event. Winning this award has opened doors and allowed me to meet a number of people I probably wouldn't have crossed paths with had this not happened. So really grateful for the opportunity and just amazed by the work that that Bird and Brenda all of the time and energy, and sweat and intention mm-hmm. they put into putting this together.
7: Great. What um, do you have any plans for the future? in terms of your artwork, shows coming up, projects you're working on, collaborations, anything. I know this just happened (laughs) in the last week, so I don't know if you have any big plans on the horizon.
6: Um, I've got to share, and I and I won't be specific, there have definitely been some opportunities in Yale because this just happened. I'm in a couple of conversations that I'm really excited about, but because things aren't finalized, I won't name names yet. But I want to say that even though this just happened, I think these are, are opportunities that I uh, wouldn't have come my way any other way. And what is your Instagram account? AYJAY09. So AJ09.
7: Gotcha. All mm-hmm. right. Well, thank you so much. And good thank luck you th- to you with,
6: with your process. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you, Yanni Chung and Alice Troyer, for taking the time to chat. We look forward to seeing your creative pursuits. I'm Gabrielle Javier Cerulli with Artful Encounters.
1: On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new documentaries on the struggle for equality in the arts, live at Mr. Kelly's about an integrated, groundbreaking music and comedy club in Chicago, and Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It, about Moreno's hard-fought struggle on the public stage and behind the scenes.
9: At Mr. Kelly's
7: nightclub in Chicago, I was a burgeoning superstar.
1: Mr. Kelly's was the real deal.
4: Mr. Kelly's was everything. Kelly's was a hip happening place. That was clip from the trailer for the new documentary, Live at Mr. Kelly's, written and directed by Theodore Bogoshin. It's the story of the long gone but not forgotten Chicago nightclub, Mr. Kelly's, and the sister clubs, London House, an upscale jazz supper club, and the theater oriented Happy Medium. The Cubs were owned and run by two brothers, Oscar and George Marienthal. The clubs during their day from 1954 to 1973 were the place to see up-and-coming comedians and singers in Chicago. Oscar had an uncanny knack for new talent. George was the businessman. Together, they made a great team. Oscar discovered then 20-year-old Barbara Streisand in 1963 at a small club in New York. He offered to triple her salary, and she jumped at the offer. Sadly, Oscar died suddenly at the age of 50 and never got to see her perform at his club. Mr. Kelly's opened November 24, 1953, as a steak place. In 1954, they added music. Two of their early comedians were Mort Sahl and Lenny Bruce, cutting-edge comics of the day. They broke out of the old Henny Youngman routine and did social and political commentary. Mr. Kelly set up a state-of-the-art recording studio and performers cut albums of their live shows. In 1958 alone, Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy King, Della Reese, Buddy Greco, Anita O'Day, Sarah Vaughan, and comedian Mort Mortson recorded there. The club was small, providing an intimate setting for the performers. There's a great scene with a young Bette Midler doing a risque show. The clubs were one of the few places that were inclusive in its selection of talent, bringing black and white and brown performers together and encouraging a mixed audience. One commentator of the era said there were three cities to play, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Chicago's venue was one of the best. It broke the color barrier and the gender barrier, introducing Joan Rivers and Lily Tomlin, among others. There were some enjoyable interviews with Dick Gregory, Tomlin, Lanny Kazan, who was about to go on when the place started on fire in 1966, and many others. A fun, thoughtful, nostalgic film in a compact 88 minutes. It just started showing on Voodoo. Now for another documentary, this one about a famous Latinx actor. She
6: comes with history. Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony.
0: I was really drawn to her. She made me feel like a woman could do
4: anything because she did. She was a Latina, like me.
2: She just brings such authority
8: and such honesty to whatever she's playing.
4: Some people that was a clip from the trailer for Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It, the new documentary directed by Miriam Perez Riacharang. Moreno, who turns 90 in December, gets plenty of space to tell her own story. Moreno, despite her long career, is probably best remembered for playing Rita, in the 1961 West Side Story. She was shocked to win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. She also worked on the PBS kids show Electric Company with her signature line. Hey you guys! She has stacked up an almost countless number of awards. Among the talking heads is fellow Electric Company veteran Morgan Freeman. Latinx figures praise her as a trailblazer for women and people of color, especially for the Puerto Rican diaspora. Lynn manuel Miranda executive producer of the documentary, puts her in the pantheon of Latinx people he most admires. There's also Eva Longoria, Gloria Estefan, Justina Machado, Karen Olivo, and others. The documentary doesn't skip over her hard times and abusive situations in the old studio system. Marino herself takes charge and talks frankly about her sexual abuse, including a rape by one of her early agents who continued to work with her because she felt he was the only agent who would promote her career. There were also difficulties in her personal life, including her relationship with Brando, and later with her caring but controlling spouse. Her achievements are all the more amazing as we see what she overcame. She's still getting work, including in the upcoming Spielberg revision of The West Side Story. The documentary just started playing on Netflix. Well worth watching. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6 Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson and Gabrielle Javier Cerulli Jonah Chester produced this newscast Victor Calzone engineered the show And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT I'm your host, Nick Dodge
1: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, the Access Hour. Good night.